0: And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. God, we believe in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe in the Father who sent His Son to die for sinners. And we believe in the Holy Spirit who is sent by the Father and the Son to go and collect them by giving them faith in the gospel. And so we pray, Father, that Your Spirit would do that work in us today. Call wayward children to Yourself. And Lord, even more, We pray that you would call enemies, people who are right now your enemies. Would you give them faith that they may become your children by faith in Christ? I pray you'd help us to hear your words and to obey them and to trust them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you know yourself well enough to know which of these ditches you'd fall into. Are you more likely to feel that you do not need forgiveness? Or are you more likely to feel that you cannot be forgiven? Or another dichotomy here would be this. Are you more likely to see that others couldn't change in their sin? More likely to see somebody say, that person can't change. Or, are you more likely to excuse the sin of others and say that it's really not a problem? These events in the life of Jesus happened and were recorded for us to save us from both of those cliffs. Both of those cliffs. Hellish ditches. The first point that I think we can see here very, very clearly, if you would with me, is that Jesus calls sinners to follow him. Did you notice the word follow shows up so many times in that passage? It's as if God knows that we are made of dust and we need repetition. Jesus calls sinners to follow him. The other word that's repeated a lot is sinners. Did you notice that? Jesus calls sinners to follow him. So if you're reading the book of Mark with us, if you're following along in the eyewitness account of Christ's ministry, you would notice that so far, Jesus has no scandalous followers. He has no people who are officially, uh, people that he recognizes as his followers, scandalous. Now, maybe there were some scandalous people that followed Jesus, maybe crowds going at him or following him. But so far, Mark hasn't mentioned that there's any that Jesus acknowledges as his followers. Certainly not any who have been called by name, by Jesus. And Jesus is teaching in this passage. He's again out by the sea, and he's teaching. And we know Jesus is teaching the gospel, He's teaching the gospel of the Messiah coming to rescue the world. To rescue the world from sin. To rescue the world from all of the problems that have come of sin. Because of uh, a condemnation and all these things. To make things right again. To make it a righteous world. And then as he's passing by, he sees Levi at the tax booth. Now, if you've read the Bible before, if you've read the other parts of the Bible, you know that Levi is not always called by this name. He's got a Jewish name and he's got a non-Jewish name. Some of you who have immigrated to Canada from other countries, you know very well that you have adopted two names. And this guy's name was Levi, but also called Matthew. And Matthew was a tax collector. Now, we're not talking simply about working for Revenue Canada on regent and Reinders. there. A tax collector in those days, it was almost impossible to do this profession successfully without sinning, without being a crook, without being a cruel thief. Because what would happen is that these tax collectors would, they'd have to bid on a territory. The Romans wanted taxes. The Romans wanted peace. They wanted taxes, right? And so every territory could be bid on by a tax collector. And of course, that territory would go to the highest bidder. This person says, I can get a million bucks from this area. And this other person says, I can get 1.3. Well, that person's going to get it. And these tax collectors, of course, you had to deliver then that 1.3. And you obviously had to resort to some pretty cruel means in order to do that. Not only that, you could demand whatever you wanted. The Romans don't care. Demand triple. We don't care. You must make sure you give us what your bid was. You guys know how this works. If you're bidding on a job, right? you manage your profit in there. And you can demand now what you want as a tax collector with the help of Roman swords. You could keep anything that was above your bid. The tax collectors in those days were forbidden from entering the synagogue. which would have been a regular church service in the Old Testament church. They were forbidden from entering the synagogue. There actually were exemptions. If you guys know the Ten Commandments, the Ninth Commandment is that you're not supposed to lie or bear false witness against your neighbor, right? You're not supposed to lie. Well, in those days, there was an exception to the ninth commandment. You could lie to a tax collector. You could slander a tax collector. You could do anything. You could speak any ill you wanted to about a tax collector. These people would have been considered the same way that moles would have been in Soviet Russia or perhaps in Nazi-occupied territory during World War II, those people who collaborated with them and spied on their neighbors in order to get money. We met somebody who was ceremonially, ceremonially unclean in our walk through Mark so far. But now we have somebody who's not only ceremonially unclean, like the lepers or the paralytics, but this one, was a man in gross sin. Not just ceremonial uh, filthiness, but actual moral filthiness. And Jesus turns to him and says, follow me. Now, as you're reading the book of Mark, you'll notice that Jesus has many disciples. There's many people who he calls to follow him. But then he also has a group that we call that he called the apostles. He had 12 of these. And these were people who would be set aside essentially to write the New Testament. These were his official eyewitnesses. He promised that whoever would believe their words that the Holy Spirit would give to them, anyone who believed their words about Christ, their testimony, would be saved. And right here, we, we know from the future that Levi or Matthew is going to be one of these apostles. Right now, it's not quite clear what he is, but we know that he is actually called as an apostle. And these people were also representatives of his people. The 12 apostles were representatives of his people. Just like in the Old Testament church, the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 sons of Israel, were the representatives of God's people, of God's Old Testament church. And so, When Jesus is calling Levi or Matthew, when he's calling him as an apostle, he's making a statement, and he's making a statement about all the people that Jesus would call. Jesus would call sinners to follow him, and they would. Now, this is not the Messiah that the church leaders envisioned. Yes, they wanted a helper. A helper for people who were generally good, whose good far outweighed the bad that they did so that it would be terrible to call these people sinners. Sin was something they did occasionally and accidentally, but they were generally quite good, right? Somebody who plays hockey once every five years, it would be inappropriate to call that man a hockey player. And yes, Jesus, the Messiah, we're looking for a Messiah who would help people who, yes, had some sin, but were good. People who had done their bit and maybe need a little bit of turbo boost or tidying up. And Jesus could not be blamed if the morally filthy people followed him against his will. But now Jesus is actually taking responsibility for the fact that this morally filthy man was following him because Jesus invited him to do that. In fact, even commanded him to do that. Jesus calls him personally. Jesus chose to say that this man belonged to him and that he also, Jesus, was the Messiah. How dare he? Would you consider yourself too sinful to save? Have you thought about your sin? And have you worried if you were the kind of person that Jesus could not save? You're too sinful. You've not done enough. Maybe you don't think that about yourself, but maybe you consider other people too sinful to save. Maybe it's not the people who work for Revenue Canada. But maybe it's a particular group or a particular religious group. Maybe you think scientists. Maybe you think particular religions. Maybe Muslims. Or maybe it's people in the LGBTQ community. People who have embraced that lifestyle. Maybe you consider these people too sinful to save. This passage rejects that outright. Jesus has come to call sinners to follow him. Maybe when you correct other believers, maybe you want to correct them and point out their sin, you actually don't believe they can repent. You don't even want them to repent. All you're doing is just getting it off your chest. Did you know you did something wrong? Do you actually think people can repent? Do you think that sinners can turn and be saved from their sin? Dear friends, this passage, these events in Jesus' life that he acts out, it proves that Jesus calls sinners to follow him and they do. Because after Jesus calls Levi and says, follow him, the next words are, and he rose and followed him. Our next point that we're going to get from this passage is that Jesus enjoys fellowship with those who follow him. Jesus enjoys fellowship with those who follow him. The next thing we know, we're in Levi or Matthew's house. And he invites his community, his community to a meal with Jesus. And his community is tax collectors and sinners. Now, it's important to note that that word sinners uh, has two definitions. And both are in view here. First of all, those who have taken on a lifestyle that is marked by sin. They're not fighting it. They're not denying it. They're embracing it. Prostitutes and, and those who use them. Thieves, practicing homosexuals. Adulterers. People who lie and do not regret it. I just lie when I need to. People who embrace this as a lifestyle. Open. They openly embrace a practice condemned by God's word. But it also means in that context the Pharisees would have used that word to talk about people who were too poor or too common to to afford their lifestyle where all they did was studied the Scripture and all the extra rules. People like shepherds. Either way, people who were called and marked by sin. But when Jesus uses that word He's not talking about a particular subset of our culture. He's talking about all of us. All of us are sinners. There is no one who is not a sinner. There's not somebody whose life is not marked by sin. We are all sinners. And yet Jesus enjoys fellowship with saved sinners, those who follow him. What does fellowship mean? Fellowship is a very Christianese word, right? We use it all the time. Nobody's really sure what it means. Fellowship would be the sharing of life, the giving of yourself, the, the uh, understanding that we, we, we don't have separate lives altogether, but that our lives overlap and we're happy that they do. We want to share joys with people. We want to share sadness with other people. And this is most often symbolized with a meal, with a meal. It's a sign of fellowship. And when we have this, when we eat a meal together, what is symbolized in scripture by this is enjoyment, your enjoyment of one another. You sit down and eat a meal to enjoy each other. That person enjoying you, you enjoying them, and then also enjoying something that they have in common, that you have in common and so, when we say, when the Bible teaches that Jesus enjoys fellowship with those who follow him, we realize that God enjoys fellowship with us, with people who are saved by Christ. God created man and women for fellowship with him, to glorify and enjoy him forever. And in the Garden of Eden, our first parents were tempted by a false gospel, the false gospel offered them by Satan, which is that there is more joy apart from this relationship with God. There's something greater than enjoying God and God enjoying you. It would be better if you were rivals with God or ignoring God or rejecting Him because He's a joy thief. This was the lie that was offered to our parents. And we consistently consistently believe it, that there is more joy than enjoying God and God enjoying you. Now, the gospel offer, the Christian offer, is not merely that you will be forgiven your sins. It is that you will be forgiven your sins if you come to Christ, but it is greater than that. Being forgiven to be restored to fellowship with God. And that is the reason why the road to destruction is so wide and the path to salvation is so narrow. Because the thing that the gospel offers is the thing that we hate the most fellowship with God, enjoying God. Worshipping God, having God enjoy us. That is the thing that fallen humanity hates the most. Now we pretend we like it. We create false gods that we would actually enjoy being around. But they really reflect who we are more than they reflect the truth of the Creator God. Our problem as sinners is a heart problem. And while we would really like to be forgiven, We do not want fellowship with God. Just like Satan, who would view this as a punishment, so too would we view it as a punishment and not a reward. And so the goal, dear friends, the goal of the gospel is the mutual enjoyment of God and his people. Now, to enjoy somebody is wonderful. You can imagine enjoying somebody, a time where you really enjoyed being with somebody. It's wonderful, isn't it? To enjoy someone else. But isn't it also wonderful? A wonderful joy for someone else to enjoy you? This is the goal of the gospel. This is the promise of the gospel. That we would take Christ's seat at the table of God. And that not only would we enjoy God, but that he would delight in us. That he wouldn't merely just put up with us. He wouldn't merely just agree not to send us to hell. But he would treasure us. And he would cherish us. And this is why the end of history is is marked by the marriage supper of the Lamb. The feast when Jesus returns. And that feast, we are told, will be filled with sinners. With sinners who have been saved by Christ. And so the, the feast that Matthew or Levi hosts is marked by people who are following Jesus. Did you notice this? It's marked by people who are following Jesus. Let's read that just demonstrate this, and as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, here it is, for there were many who followed him. So this isn't Jesus enjoying the pride parade. This is people whose lives have been marked with sin, turning from that sin and saying, I want Jesus more than that. I know I have to choose between sin and Christ and I want Christ. And this is the goal of all who belong to Christ. Not fellowship with sin, but fellowship with God. And the two are not compatible. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 14b says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with with darkness. But sinners are those Christ calls to follow him and enjoy fellowship with him instead of their sin. And dear friends, this helps us to understand the cross better. Because we understand that the Christian hope is that Jesus, the Son of God, died in the place of sinners and rose from the dead so we can be saved. But we will understand the cross better if we understand this idea of fellowship with God. That fellowship with God is pictured in the family meal or feast. And that is precisely what Christ temporarily relinquished on the cross, the thing that is most enjoyable in all the universe, the thing that Christ loved and treasured the absolute most, which is fellowship with God the Father. For a period of time on the cross, he, you could say, forfeited that in exchange for that which is most to be feared. And that is not merely the absence from the table but to be in God's presence as an enemy. Christ was not just taken away from the table for a period of time so that we could join. No. He went to the cross, which is the anti-table. He went to the cross where we deserved to go. And he suffered what we deserved, the relationship which we deserved, so that we can enjoy the fellowship that he deserves with God. And he did this because he loved us while not just we were a little bit bad, but while we could be called sinners. He took the cross instead of the table. And friends, when Jesus takes the cross instead of the table, he's not declaring... That everyone's at the table. He's not saying everyone has fellowship with God. He's not saying everyone's a child of God. You just don't realize it. He's not by taking the cross instead of the table. He's saying no one has this. No one is at the table. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of you are destined for destruction. But I am giving my life so that you might saved, demonstrating his love for sinners who had forfeited fellowship with God. Dear church, when you think about salvation, when you think about Christ saving sinners, do you only think about it as a legal matter? You know, I was guilty, guilty of a punishment, no more punishment, or Do you think about that? Because it's true. Do you think about, are you happy that you're forgiven your sins so that you can have fellowship with God? Is the goal only forgiveness? Or is the goal, yes, forgiveness, but so that I can have fellowship with God? And then related to that question, do you intentionally enjoy God? Do you delight in his character? You know, we sing psalms from Scripture, we read the psalms, and the psalms are a masterclass in this. They take one of the characteristics or a few characteristics about God, and then they just say, let's enjoy that. Let's praise Him for that. Let's treasure that. If this is rich food, let's, let's savor it as we're eating it. Let's take joy in God, in His attributes, in His character. In these laws even. Oh God, you make good laws. His works of salvation. Do you take time to enjoy that? To delight in God? Do you see your acts of obedience as being enjoyable because you know that God enjoys them? That even though it might cost you and people, other people might hate you for doing it, it is enough to know my Father in heaven sees this and he loves it. Now, of course, the danger is to say, yeah, he, he loves it and that's why he's saving me. <laughs> but that's wicked. No, what Christ did saves me and he, he works in me, he redeems me so that I might do things that are now pleasing to the God, not to earn salvation, but to thank him for it and to enjoy what Christ has purchased which is now a new life where I've been reconciled to God and I live with fellowship with God. Oh, there's many ways to delight in God, to enjoy God. And the worship service of the church, the weekly worship service of the church, is one of the primary ways. In fact, we make a priority for it. And by doing so, we express our own weakness You're saying, I'm so sinful and weak, it would be so much better if I did this with other people. They can drag me out of a slump. They can sing into my ears and help me to turn my eyes back to Christ and enjoy Him rather than the sin that I've been thinking is more enjoyable than Him. Or they can turn our eyes to the gospel when we are so convinced that Christ wouldn't be able to save us because we're so wicked. And then our brothers and sisters would preach in our ears and sing in our ears, you are that wicked, but his mercy is more. In church service, in your personal worship of God, in your family worship of God, when you're fellowshipping with other believers, when you're getting together with them, enjoy each other, enjoy God in your daily life. And can you picture the unbelievers in your life, in the world? Can you picture them having fellowship with God? Or is that just something that's impossible, can't even think of it? Can you picture that person who has made an identity of sin, turning away from that sin and actually enjoying God at great cost? Because, dear friends, that is the only motivation that will get us to evangelize. Christ calls sinners to have fellowship with him, and they do. Because he has paid for this with his blood. Our third point that we're going to get from this passage is this. Jesus came to rescue sinners from sin. And it's kind of a summary of the other things, but Jesus uses such a beautiful illustration that it's good to just focus on this particular phrase as An individual point. Jesus came to rescue sinners from sin. And so Jesus is at the table with these scandalous sinners. Again, it's not the pride parade, these are people who are enjoying Christ. And the Pharisees are absolutely unhappy with this. Scandalous for Jesus to do this. And so they confront the disciples. And the disciples, it's early on, They really doesn't seem like they know exactly what to say, so they just tell Jesus, these people are asking why we're doing this. And Jesus' response was clear, obvious. And it was like a sun ray cutting through the complex religious added ideas that these Pharisees have, have made up, this cloud of of great, really good religious reasons why it shouldn't happen. And he shines a bright light through that. Verse 17, And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And here Jesus eliminates two opposite But equally hellish ditches on either side of the path to life. And the first ditch is that God saves the good. That is a hellish ditch that will lead to hell. The belief that God saves the good. On the other other side of the path to life is another ditch. And that is that God approves of sin. Let's look at the first ditch that Jesus eliminates with this beautiful illustration. And that is God saves the good. Not true. A physician is needed because of a lack of health. In the new heavens and earth, if there was no sickness, there will be no sickness. There will be no physicians. It doesn't mean that doctors can't go to heaven. It just means there won't be doctors when they get there. They'll have to find another job. And so the fact that Israel, the Old Testament church, needed a Messiah, the fact that they were promised a Messiah, the fact that they were promised a Savior was not a sign that they were holy. (laughs) It wasn't a, a sign that they were healthy. It wasn't a sign that they were sinless. But it was a sure sign that they were not, and yet God had determined to save them anyways. And so, for a person of the Old Testament church to say that the Messiah of the Bible was their Messiah, they should have known that by saying that the Messiah of the Bible is their Messiah, they should have known that by saying that they were confessing their sin. And that means that for anyone to say that they were not sinners is to say that the Messiah of the Bible is not my Messiah. John picks this up in 1 John chapter 1, verse 10. He says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, that's God, and his word is not in us. God does not save the good. He saves sinners. And if you believe you are not a sinner, there is something we can be certain that you are not and that is a christian you aren't a christian if you believe you just needed some help from jesus you're not a christian you are on the pathway you are on the highway to hell because christ same uh, said that he came to rescue sinners That is the first ditch that is eliminated with Christ's beautiful cutting illustration. And the second ditch that is eliminated is that God approves of sin. False. Because a doctor is not called to a sick person to celebrate sickness, not to declare that sickness is A OK. A doctor doesn't come to the sick or invite sick people to hang out with him simply because he loves hanging out with sick people. He loves sickness. Well, he's not a good doctor. There might be some of those. And many church leaders have jumped into this hellish ditch and taken many people along with them. And those church leaders will suffer even more greatly in hell. And they have taught that Christ being a friend of sinners meant that he approved of their sin. Or that he actually disagreed with calling it sin. No, it's, it's actually not sin. Or maybe people have taught that the church is for unrepentant Sinners people who wish to remain in their sin, but who want to have fellowship with God. Friends, this is a lie from the pit of hell because Christ is not just a physician. He's the great physician. He's a successful one. If becoming a Christian to you meant that you you intended to continue in sin, and yet enjoy the promises of God, then you have in fact not become a Christian. Around 500 years ago, one of the reformers said these words. We're reminded that the grace of Christ is no advantage to us unless when conscious of our sins and groaning under their load, we approach to him with humility. There's also something here which is fitted to elevate weak consciences, to affirm assurance. For we have no reason to fear that Christ will reject sinners, to call whom He descended from his heavenly glory. But we must also attend to the expression, to repentance which is intended to inform us that pardon is granted to us, not to cherish our sins, but to recall us to the earnestness of a devout and holy life. He reconciles us to the Father on this condition, that being redeemed by his blood, we may present ourselves true sacrifices. And then he quotes Titus 2 verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of the great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us. To redeem us from all lawlessness. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Who are zealous for good works. Did you see here? the double cure that we sang about earlier, that we can be certain that Christ will turn away no sinner. But we also see that coming to Christ is not just coming to him for forgiveness. It's coming to him to be saved from sin. I trust that that man died for my sin and rose from the dead so that I might be saved from sin. We're gonna do a little theology here, so stay with me. Christ's work as a physician is described in four ways in Scripture. If you're taking notes, this is a good time. And they're technical notes, so you're just gonna get ready for it, all right? Buckle up. Justification, regeneration, sanctification, and glorification. He's a physician in justification. Justification means that he forgives your sin. He declares the guilty as righteous because he was declared guilty even though he was righteous. If your faith is in Christ, you are forgiven. You are righteous. And so he makes you officially healed, officially righteous. He is a good and great physician, our sin taken off of us and put onto him. But secondly, he is the great physician in regeneration. You've heard the word born again. That's what that means, just a little more fancy. Regeneration, born again. That means he gives us a new heart and we have a new relationship to God's law. Whereas maybe we hated God's law because it condemned us before and we maybe used it to trust in ourselves. Oh, I'm really good at keeping God's law so I'm going to get to heaven. No, we have a new relationship to God, a new relationship to God's law where we now say, yes, God's law definitely condemns me. It, It shows that I'm not able to keep God's law enough to get to heaven. But Christ did it for me and now I love God's law because it is an enjoyment of God and his character. And so we have an a new heart so that we desire holiness and we start to hate sin and we have new desires and we have new battles. We're now battling sin. It's not gone yet, but we're battling it and God gives us strength to do that. And that leads us to the next one, which is sanctification. Another fancy word that just means being made holy. Christ is the great physician Because bit by bit, he will transform us. Sometimes it is slow and painful. For other people, not for us. But sometimes it's pretty quick. But he has promised to transform us bit by bit by bit to make us more holy. Now, we're not accepted by God based on this transformation. But it is evidence of him keeping his promise where we engage in a battle against sin. And oh, we're able to repent. When a brother and sister in Christ comes to us and say, let us show you from scripture you've sinned, we can repent. We're able to be corrected. And now we have ears so that we can hear the word of God and we treat it as the voice of our good shepherd who can call us back from sin. But lastly, he is the good shepherd because of glorification. The moment a Christian dies, they will be glorified. And there will be no sin. The minute a Christian believes they're forgiven, they're not guilty, declared innocent, declared righteous in God's sight. But the minute a Christian dies, they will no longer struggle with sin. Not because they're dead and there's nothing to do, but because they will be made exactly like Christ. We shall be like him and we shall no more sin. We shall live eternally as healed persons as holy people. And this is why all these things put together, we realize that following Christ does not save you. There was a movement in Christianity in a number of years ago that talked not about trusting Christ or belief, but talked about following Christ as the primary thing. Difference that's dangerous. Following Christ doesn't save you. Following his example doesn't save you. Faith in him does. Trusting in him. But it is a faith that comes to him with a desire to follow. You're trusting in him to lead you out of sin. Not to help you stay in it. And trusting him to lead you to fellowship with God because it is a great physician faith. We end here In this story that, this account of what happened in Jesus' life with this feast, where Matthew has invited all of his friends who are willing to hear Jesus to come. Who knows you who does not know the gospel? And how many of those people have you not told because you're pretty sure they wouldn't accept it? Dear friends, we believe that Christ is the great physician. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. And now who could you reach out to that you don't yet know with the intention of a physician? Not the intention to enjoy what they enjoy, but the intention of bringing Christ the great physician, who maybe you have assumed was unsavable. Now, in our day, ironically, there has been a reversal of the people that the church finds easy to save versus hard to save. Because sometimes it actually seems in our day that we think only the poor, only the sick, only the children, only people who have less than us are those whom Christ can save. And we avoid people maybe like who, who don't have any obvious needs. We need to remember here that Matthew wasn't poor. He wasn't a likely candidate here, but that didn't matter. The great physician can save anyone that he attempts to save. Dear friend, do you know you are in need of such a dramatic solution as the gospel? Do you realize that that is the depth of sin that is true of you and me? Have you come to Christ trusting him for salvation from sin or merely forgiveness for it? Dear Christian, do you believe that he can keep you from sin? The next time you face a temptation, will you actually think, well, probably can't face this, probably just have to give in? Or do you believe he can keep you? He can always give you a way out. Dear Christian, is this your hope of heaven? Is the thing you love about heaven simply that you won't have to deal with wars and Rumors of wars and earthquakes and poverty and sickness and death. Yeah, that's great. But is the thing you're looking forward to about heaven, is it, about, is it fellowship with God and the fact that you will no longer sin? That is a sure hope for all who have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he has promised us that because Christ died for our sins, we will have fellowship with God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not just come to give us good advice. And we thank you that you've not just given us a good physician, but you have given us Christ, the great physician. Lord, we thank you that Christ was willing to take that relationship with, uh, with you that sinners deserve, on the cross so that we might enjoy that which is most enjoyable, which is fellowship with you. Father, if there are people here who are pretty convinced they do not need to be saved, Lord, I pray that you would reveal to them their sin so that they might run to Christ and be saved. Father, if there are people here who are convinced they can't be saved because of their sin, show them that yes, though their sins are many, Christ's mercy is more. And Father, for all of us, let us have confidence in the gospel that if it were up to us, we could not be saved. You are not just our example of salvation, but you, Lord, are our salvation. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.